Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, a new podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and today's question is a big one. What's gone wrong with psychology? I'm pursuing the answer to that question with my guest Chris Chambers, who's Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience in the School of Psychology at the University of Cardiff. When I saw Chris's new book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology, announced in the Princeton University Press catalogue, I suppose I thought those sins might be peccadilloes, the sorts of errors of judgment that might require a little course correction to keep the discipline on track. But reading Chrissy's book, it soon became clear that the problems went much deeper. We like to throw around words in psychology like novelty, creativity, innovation, flair, that sort of thing. You know, These descriptors of what many psychologists, and particularly senior psychologists, believe characterises high-quality psychological science. Now, of course, a science without reproducibility and replicability is not a science. It's not something that you could trust to reveal anything true about nature. And so what we found in recent years is that when you combine this really biased way of selecting what's, what gets published with all of these career pressures to make results look nice and to create stories out of data, you find that when people put their heads down and actually do replicate, so they say, stuff the incentives, I'm going to get 100 researchers together and I am going to replicate some really important studies in the field, inevitably what you find is that it's all a house of cards. Those studies do not replicate. Chris's charge sheet is damning. The seven deadly sins include bias, unreliability, data hoarding, data manipulation, lack of reproducibility. And not just isolated examples, a few bad apples, but a culture in which you have to play the game to get ahead. We found ourselves, Chris writes, trapped within a culture where the appearance of science was seen as an appropriate replacement for the practice of science. In such a culture, you can enjoy a stable, if unremarkable, career by engaging in questionable practices to generate publishable stories. And in the battle between sound science and seductive storytelling, the storytelling always wins. After ten years of playing the game, Chris writes, I realised... I didn't like the kind of scientist I was turning into, so I decided to try and change the system and my own practices. And so for the past few years, he's been one of a number of psychologists pushing for fundamental reform of the discipline, seeking to make it, as he says in the last pages of his book, 
a truly rigorous and open science. We'll come on to that. But when I met Chris in Cardiff last month, I began by asking him about the idealistic scientist he had been at the very start of his career, and how he was disabused of his notion that a career in science meant a life spent in the disinterested pursuit of truth. Like all young scientists, I suppose, I got, I got into, into the profession thinking that science was a place for objective truth-seeking. And as I write about in the book, my first experience in the late 90s of submitting a manuscript to a journal was one in which I came into the process believing that if you perform a well-conducted experiment, if you perform a robust, rigorous piece of science, then the journal would accept that paper based on the quality of the method and the theory that you're testing and would never decide what to publish based on the outcomes of that experiment. You know, we think of the objectivity of the scientific process and we think, what makes that valuable? It is the fact that it's meant to be unbiased, it's meant to represent some measure of reality. It's robustly conceived and it's robustly conducted and it's responsibly written up and presented. Exactly. So you think of it as something that has integrity and something that has an innate value that goes beyond the result. But of course, you know, as you say, I was very quickly disabused of that naive notion when the paper was rejected because the reviewers didn't find the results particularly interesting. And that was an important lesson that I think many young scientists, I think I was, what, 21 or 22 years old at that time, which seems like a lifetime ago, but uh, I think many young scientists go through that process of transitioning from the type of science that they're taught and the type of science they read about, and they may have, you know, had this idealised version of if they read Carl Sagan or or follow popular scientists um, in the media. But then when they get into science, they discover, whoa, it's a bit different to this. It's all about storytelling. It's all about taking, at least in psychology, taking... Um, you know, a well-conducted study and engineering a narrative out of the outcome so that you can convince an editor and a set of reviewers that what you've done makes a major advance and is exciting enough for their readership. That word you just used, engineering, that covers a multitude of sins, doesn't it? You write about the seven deadly sins. And I guess engineering at its most benign might be slightly massaging a result or collecting just a little bit more data or perhaps excluding some outliers. And then at the other extreme, it extends to really starting with a narrative that you want to tell, and then either really pushing the data or fabricating, in some, in some instances, fabricating data in order to, to match that narrative. That's right. I mean, we're dealing with a, a continuum, a spectrum, if you like, of questionable behaviours, which at the, very, at the most benign end you can really think of as ways of fooling ourselves into seeing what we want to see. It's really easy to do this. I mean, we all fall prey to it, whether we're scientists or not in everyday life. We, we interpret the evidence around us in terms of our prior beliefs, and, and we tend to believe evidence more if it confirms what we think we already know. And the, the various kind of grey practices in, in science, which are particularly prevalent in psychology begin life in that way they're sort of they're sort of unconscious biases and then you discover as a researcher that actually they're really necessary to succeed career-wise they're valued by the community these skills in storytelling and making the best 
of a failed study and this kind of talk. We were often taught this sort of stuff when we got, when we got past the undergraduate stage and we got into the doctoral stage. I think a lot of us as, as researchers were taught that this was the way to succeed. And so those practices that began as unconscious become a little bit more explicit in your mind. And then I think you're on a track where you can go two ways. You can either recognize what you're doing and try and put a stop to it, which is what I've tried to do in my career and what I, the main message I'm really trying to get across in this book. Or I think you can follow that path to a, a much sadder and more you know, damaging conclusion, which is, say, Diedrich Stapel, and where you, you begin to realize that you can push that envelope further and further and further until you're literally sitting at your kitchen table making up the data. Well, I definitely want to come back to Diedrich Stapel. But before we come on to him, I was really taken aback by the culture that you described in one of your earlier academic posts, which you describe as being like at an elite telemarketing company with digital displays, basically, you know, sort of saying, Who's this, who are this week's star performers? And the metrics that were used to identify them seemed very dubious. But tell me a bit, a bit about that culture, because I think people on the outside will be quite surprised by what prevailed. Yes, I think people, when they look, look at science, and particularly elite science from the outside, they don't necessarily realise how damn competitive it is and how the soldiers in that competition are mostly young researchers really pushing and grinding away and competing with each other and elbowing each other out of the way, trying to get to some kind of career stability. And the institute that I worked at in London when I first moved to the UK about 12 years ago did have a large LCD monitor as you would go through the front doors, which would report this week's kind of star performers who published what paper in what prestigious journal. And it would kind of burn itself into your brain as you walked through the door. And, and it would just be a constant reminder that what matters is output in prestigious journals. And that's how that institute survived. That's how it maintained its funding. That was at the very core, I suppose, of its, of its essence. That, I think, has a very pernicious influence on scientists at all career levels, both early career and later. Now, what about someone again on the outside who might say, well, it doesn't sound like such a bad objective to try to get published in prestigious journals because obviously they've got high selection criteria. And mm. isn't, that, isn't that as good a measure of, of a successful department as any other if lots of its members are getting published in the best journals? Yes, if the journals were selecting the best science, that would be true. Um, but we know that these very prestigious journals select based on results. Now, if you're an objective scientist, the one part of your research that you would want to be able to say to others that was independent of your manipulation and your kind of massaging is the results. You would want to say, yep, I did a beautiful experiment and look at these amazing results I got. And that's just the way it is. I discovered something phenomenal. You'd want to be able to say that. But of course, you know, in my field especially, results are often very noisy and very messy. And so there's a great pressure to clean data and to make it look nice. And these very prestigious journals in my field that play such an enormous role in determining career progression, these journals select based on those results. So whilst competition isn't necessarily unhealthy and prestigious journals aren't necessarily bad, when you combine the way they select what to publish with that intense pressure on the scientists, then it creates a really pernicious incentive structure and a, and a vicious cycle. And then as a discipline as a whole, 
the the problems which come along after the publication of something which may on the face face of it be an impressive result and an interesting story the problems are the non replicability or the the lack of an attempt to replicate yes. the results that have been and also the non verifiability of the data and both of those things surprise me about the discipline of psychology well that's right i mean not only are experiments difficult to replicate because often the papers don't contain enough detail to do so um, there's no incentive to perform replications because replication studies will not get you into those top journals it's a low grade activity within a discipline it's exactly oh, it's perceived as such it's perceived as being something that lacks intellectual prowess essentially and they, we like to throw around words in psychology like novelty creativity innovation flair that sort of thing you know these descriptors of what many psychologists and particularly senior psychologists believe characterizes high quality psychological science now of course a science without reproducibility and replicability is not a science it's not something that you could trust to reveal anything true about nature and so what we found in recent years is that when you combine this really biased way of selecting what's what gets published with all of these career pressures to make results look nice and to create stories out of data you find that when people put their heads down and actually do replicate so they say stuff the incentives i'm going to get 100 researchers together and i am going to replicate some really important studies in the field inevitably what you find is that it's all a house of cards those studies do not replicate so the self correction comes in then and we realize oh my god this is what we've created this is the system we've created by putting together as i keep saying pernicious incentives and the discipline has come up with something which it calls conceptual replication which on the face of it is not true replication at all is it is it's maybe taking some element element of a, an original study and and it's like a transposition more than a replication isn't it therefore it's it doesn't seem to have any true scientific validity Conceptual replication if you call it what it is which is the an attempt to generalize it's an attempt to generalize from one set of findings and interpretations to another using a, a different experiment that's actually quite valid in science because if you establish something that is repeatable and accurate and then you say i wonder if it applies to this as well and if it did then we could expand our theory and if it didn't then we would help to refine it that's completely valid but unfortunately what's happened in psychology is that that kind of generalization that process of expansion of science has replaced verification so because the field doesn't value replication it's taken this idea of generalization and called it replication so if i do a particular experiment with a, a particular set of parameters someone could say that they have conceptually replicated that experiment by doing something which is vaguely similar and asks a related question uses completely different stimuli completely different task and they could say that that's been conceptually replicated and it's a really it's a trap it's a big trap and in the in the book chris you you quote another scientist who referred to the graveyard of undead theories in other words because theories are not properly tested they're neither living nor dead they're just kind of existing in a sort of strange penumbra that's right so just as every result that's published in psychology almost all of them will be positive and statistically significant and that means all of them pretty much provide support for whatever theory which means theories just keep we keep adding theories and variations of theories to the to the literature we don't really very often remove them and 
it's very hard to remove them because we don't do replications and we don't do rigorous science very often. So, you know, as that saying implies, you end up with a kind of immovable mountain of ideas, none of which can be confirmed or refuted using the methods that we're currently using. In other words, the discipline isn't really advancing in the way that, you know, theoretical physics could be seen to be advancing or medicine could be seen to be advancing. One of your, um, one of your friends you quote in the book says, you guys are like magpies. And that seemed to me a very pertinent comment. You sort of come out with shiny things and lots and lots of them, but it's not being kind of, it's not being kind of totalized. It's not really advancing. It's just like little bright points that, that flash and then are replaced by another set of bright points. That's right. So as an early career scientist, when I was, when I was younger, after I learned that first lesson as a very young scientist, that actually you need to tell stories to succeed. I mean, the next lesson I learned is that there's a danger in doing what we call programmatic research, where you, you do research where one study is, leads to another, leads to another, leads to another. Because if you're using weak and biased methods to do that, there's a risk that you will fail to replicate yourself as you go, and you end up kind of going in circles. So one of the tricks that people employ is to jump around a lot. You do one study in one area, but leave it to someone else to verify that. I'm going to go over here and do this. And if you jump around enough... You can make a lot of novel discoveries, and I say with my talking marks, novel discoveries, in different areas and have a very impressive looking CV, but there's no attempt to verify any of it because that's too risky. So that's where the magpies come in. Um, This friend of mine who said that was a, a researcher in genetics, and that's a comparatively rigorous discipline compared to psychology where replication is very important. And I think it's a it's an interesting observation because it causes it triggers you to reflect, I think, on your working culture. Now, I said I, I said I wanted to come back to Diederik Stapel, the Dutch, the disgraced Dutch psychologist, who kind of exemplified what you were just talking about, because he'd published 150 papers, which sounds like quite a lot in a in a you know couple of two or three decades of a career. And I wanted to ask, obviously, in some ways, he is an outlier because he was such an egregious example of fabricating data and building a career on that. But I, I wanted to ask you, if, if he in a way is a kind of monster, is he psychology's monster? Does he kind of take to the, the nth degree, the ultimate point, a whole host of the things that you're pointing to? Is he kind of like a logical outcome of all the, of all the lack of scrutiny and replicability and all the things we've just, we've just been talking about and make it kind of hideously manifest? I think in many respects he is the logical outcome of the system that we've created. I mean, if you create a system that rewards the wrong behaviours, it's inevitable that somebody will push those behaviours further and farther than most others in order to win more and to win bigger. And I think that's what Starple did. I don't really see him as a monster so much as as just weak. I think there's a weakness in in that sort of that sort of decision where you you basically surrender any purpose in your life when you do that at least your professional life, where you say, it doesn't matter what the truth is anymore. All that matters is winning. And I think if you're going to think like that, it's very difficult in the scientific system that we have to really protect properly against that kind of behavior. But the best hope you have is to create incentives for positive behaviors, for you know what we call Mertonian norms of, that, that work for the benefit of the community over the individual. You'll never stop fraud outright. I think, and I think there will always be people who will cheat. But we can certainly go some of the way by removing value from the things that Starple chased in order to succeed. Great results, essentially. Great results published in top journals. 
that's where I think we need to pay a lot of attention. We need to say, maybe it shouldn't be the result that you get that determines whether you get into a top journal. Maybe it should be some other part of the quality of your science. So tell me about your own personal decision of deciding to make a stand, of saying, you know, enough of this. Because you'd, you'd learned to play the game. You'd learned to get, you, you were getting published in good journals. You, you knew what was expected. Your career was advancing. You could have just kept playing the game. So what was it that made you think, no, I've got to make a stand. I've got to make a noise about this. I think I just got fed up with the bias in the system. And you can experience this in a very personal way as a scientist when you get your papers rejected from journals for really silly reasons. I remember back in 2011 and 2012, we had a couple of experiences in a row where journals simply rejected our papers because not because the methods were flawed or not because the question was uninteresting or the theory was unsound, but because the results contained some elements which were statistically non-significant, which showed no clear evidence of an effect. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back for me personally. I just got fed up. And that was a time when blogging was starting to get more popular. And I realized that actually, you know, in the old days, if you went through this experience, you would, you would just get your head down and keep on going. But with blogging, suddenly you can communicate the world to the world what you're thinking. And so I wrote a couple of blogs about this and the frustration. And I found that oh, there's a lot of people who feel the same. And then I discovered there's this growing open science community, which is, was trying to work on these problems and solve them. And so that really motivated me to try and do something constructive, because it's very easy as an academic to complain about the system and to see yourself as incapable of changing it. There's a kind of learned helplessness, which I see a lot of my colleagues have succumbed to. But I'd, I also think that you can escape that by just looking around a bit and realizing that you're not alone. But with a, really a set of a complex of problems, such as psychology faces, it must be very difficult to know where to start, even, even if you no longer feel alone and feel like other people share your feelings. When it's a whole culture, you know, when career structures, when journal publishing, when, when, also, when the, 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 the general culture too and its appetite for particular kinds of stories and particular kinds of conclusions, it's a lot to push against. It is a lot to push against and it can seem insurmountable, but ultimately it's just a machine with a finite number of moving parts. And I think you just have to, you have to stand back from it and kind of look at it for what it is and realize, you know, this is the pressure point here, this is the pressure point here. And you can identify those areas where things can be changed because the system does change in a semi-natural way over time. So why can't it be changed in a more direct way? So I, I, I guess at that point, I realized that one of the one of the ways to change the system is, is kind of from within. So when you're, when you're on a journal's editorial board, so this group of editors who make the decision about what gets published in that journal, you have the ability to create new policy. And at that time that I was getting annoyed by all this bias and all of this, what I saw really as practices which were the antithesis of science, I also was fortunate to be asked to join a couple of editorial boards. And on one of those at the journal Cortex, we were able to make a policy change, which I think history will show has had a pretty big effect on the way we do science. So you have to identify one little bit, I think, in the machine and target that. And then you realize that there's this big community around you of people among you that are actually targeting other bits of it. And we can work together. And that's been the great revolution, I think, is that the revolution that has enabled scientists across across the world to coordinate 
using technology and using the internet and all sorts of other forms of communication to really change this system collectively. Is there a generational dimension to it? Because you quote Machiavelli saying those who are going to be the enemies of of change are the ones who've benefited most from the old order. And if I were a scientist who'd, you know, done quite well, thank you very much, out of the old system, and also perhaps felt a little bit nervous about people sniffing around my data and my old papers... I would probably be digging in my heels right now and um, and thinking of every possible argument I could I could fling at you to say that what you were doing was was wrong-headed and wasn't going to make make a change for the better. Oh, uh, yes, I've heard all of those arguments. I've heard every single one of them for the last 4 years, almost continuously. It's kind of it's almost like you're t- talking to two worlds at the same time. You're talking to a generation of younger scientists who are who are still inspired by the potential for science to be objective and, or as, as objective as possible, like I used to be when I was you know, only 21 or 22 years old. And on the other hand, you're talking to the power base of the establishment, which is the senior professors who really, uh, for many of them, it's difficult to convince them that there's even a problem to solve, let alone that your solution is the right one. I have heard all kinds of objections over the years about some of the initiatives that we've put forward in open science, that they're naive or that they're, they're fascist, that they're too heavy-handed, that they won't work. And a lot of it's just, frankly, hot air. And have you patiently kind of engaged with them line by line or what's been your tactic? And some of it's been quite nasty. Some of it's been quite ad hominem, hasn't it? I think it's a human endeavour. I think we have to accept that when you try to change an incentive structure that is linked to power and money and prestige and ego, you are going to come up against an emotional response. And I think you go in with your eyes open. You know, you don't try and change that sort of system without recognizing that you will come under a certain amount of attack. My approach has, from the beginning, been to try and engage as constructively as possible with critics and to create a central knowledge base where every question I get, every criticism is answered for everyone. So I'm not just dealing with a whole lot of individuals, and in particular, perhaps not a lot, you know, a lot of individual senior professors, but I'm answering questions and criticisms that they pose to the community. And if you do that, everyone kind of moves together and, and gradually over time, I think we've seen that opposition to some of these reforms drop away to some extent. It's still there. There's a core there that will will fight to the death. But in the end, all they will do is make themselves irrelevant, I think. Now, one of the key planks of your reforms is um, registered reports. So can you say a little bit about what they are and what you think they can do to help? My experience as a young scientist was that in order to publish in top journals, you had to get great results. You had to get results which knocked the socks off the reviewers and editors, which in my opinion, and, and you know, in, in the opinion, opinion of many scientists in many different fields, is a bad way of assessing quality. And registered reports is an attempt to solve that problem by ensuring that journals make decisions about what to publish blind to results, without knowing what the results are, and in most cases before the results even exist. So it takes away this potential for reviewers and editors to selectively publish results that they like, results which agree with their theory, results which they believe will be widely read by their readership. And in doing so, it also takes away the incentive for individual researchers to massage, even unconsciously, results into a package that reviewers and editors will like. And it does this by reviewing the manuscript 
that is submitted to a journal in two distinct stages. At the first stage, the authors submit just the introduction and the method. So the part of the manuscript which explains what the question is, why it's an important question, and also goes into great detail about the method and how they're going to answer that question. And then you stop. And that bit goes to the reviewers and it's assessed purely based on its theoretical validity and its methodological rigour. And then if the reviews are positive and there's usually a process of revision involved, the journal provisionally accepts to publish that um, regardless of outcome. So you get an in-principle acceptance. Then the authors go away and do their research safe in the knowledge that the results that they collect and the results they present uh, will not be rejected based on what they find, but only according to whether they followed their protocol, whether their conclusions are evidence-based and they did the study to a high standard. And so it eliminates from the whole publishing process, and I think also from the research process, this temptation toward engineering results which look good and feel good. And it's hopefully going to get us somewhat closer to understanding truth and reality. And there would be more publication of data sets so that data sets would be open to scrutiny by other people. It could be, could be tested and, and retested and compared. And so replicability would, would again be enhanced. That's right. So there are many ways this format benefits replicability. One of, as you say, is data sharing. So uh, unfortunately in psychology, the status quo is that data is very rarely shared between researchers even, let alone publicly, even purely anonymized data. Uh, For registered reports, most journals that offer them have a quite strong data policy, which requires anonymized data to be made as public as possible. And that's one reason these papers will be more reliable, simply because they can be verified. And as the saying goes, I think the Royal Society's motto is trust but verify. You know, that that stage of verification is crucial in science. But there are other reasons these papers will be more replicable as well on top of the data. The fact that the methods are specified in great detail so that they can actually be repeated, almost like a recipe, compared to standard papers which have very vague methods, the methods which really achieve the bare minimum of information that a reader would need to try and do that again. And the other, the third reason that registered reports will be more replicable is that in the eventual results that are reported, there's a very clear separation between the outcomes of the research that were pre-registered and planned in advance and those that were post hoc and exploratory. Because in a a registered report, the authors are free to go away and analyse their data in, in various exploratory ways that deviates from their protocol, but those outcomes are reported separately and they're very transparently identified. And so readers are armed with with three things data, reproducible methods, and transparent reporting. And if you put those three things together, it's a great benefit for building a robust evidence base that we need in in the field. You just alluded to something which has, I think, been one of the criticisms levelled at it, that it will discourage the more exploratory sort of science, which doesn't perhaps set out with a particular hypothesis or a single hypothesis, but wants to come at data from lots of different ways. And you you think that's a bit of a a red herring, and and in fact is not precluded by what you're suggesting. Well, it it is a red herring because... And we used to get this criticism quite a lot in the early days of registered reports. It's built on an assumption that if you ask scientists to say what they're going to do before they do it, you somehow prevent them from deviating from those plans for any reason, which is a complete kind of, it's a red herring, it's a straw man. I mean, it's just not true. With a registered report, 
the researchers can, as I said earlier, they can analyze their data in exploratory ways. They can try different methods afterwards, after they've pre-registered, and they can deviate from that. The only requirement is that they report the pre-registered outcomes as well as all the extra stuff and that they clearly you know, earmark them as one or the other. And that's, that's really the key requirement, that there's transparency. So no one can argue that a registered report hinders exploratory data analysis. But some people have gone further and argued that the very nature of a registered report, expecting scientists to pre-register their intentions, that in itself is a disincentive for doing exploratory science. And I think that's also... Um, a wrong-headed argument because it, it kind of assumes that the registered report will be the only way of doing science, that it, that's the kind of the default model. And I don't think that's ever been suggested. Registered reports have only been suggested as a, as a new option for scientists to pursue where they want to free themselves from the shackles of bias. And there can be very good reasons for saying, actually, those shackles aren't so bad because I'm doing pure exploration. And so what I would rather see from the critics who attack registered reports for this reason is more innovation in terms of celebrating purely exploratory science. And that's something also that I mentioned briefly in the book, which since that was published um, has come to the fore, which is exploratory reports, which is a new type of journal article which has been launched at Cortex, the same journal that launched registered reports for the first time. And for exploratory reports... It's kind of like the yin to registered reports yang. The idea is to take hypotheses out of the equation. It's all about generating theory from data in a, in a potentially biased but also clear-headed way where you know what you're getting as a reader when you see it. Do you agree that a lot of money and a lot of time needs to be spent on replication studies? If, if we value psychology because its insights can have real-world policy implications. We want it to, to bear some fruit, and that involves the spending of public money and public policy. And yet we're looking at a corpus of material which, to put it kindly, is compromised and has no great track record for doing replication studies. Isn't that a really important, you know, in re-establishing the discipline's credentials, isn't there a huge job of work to be done now to go back and test <coughs> some of the... Um, some of the findings that have, have been accepted and but have sort of passed into the rearview mirror. Yes, and this is what um, the Reproducibility Project Psychology aimed to do. And there are a number of these um, large-scale replications that are, have been conducted and are underway in psychology for this precise reason, that we really do need to get a grip on the reproducibility of certain phenomena that have been assumed to be real and true, but in fact may not be. This varies a lot, I think, between different disciplines. So I think some areas of psychology have done a better job of building reproducibility into their everyday practices. If you look at some of the, the areas of psychology that are closest, say, to physics, and one of the areas is called psychophysics, which seeks to understand very low-level phenomena like how basic vision works or basic hearing works. If you look at those areas of psychology you find that there is a much more rigorous evidence base where there isn't such an aversion to repeating experiments and verifying. But as you go higher up the, the food chain to, to more applied and derived areas of the discipline, 
you find correspondingly the methods get weaker and weaker and the bias gets greater and greater. And so those areas are the ones where at the moment there's been a concerted effort to, to do large-scale replications. And I think until we change the way practices work at the grassroots, for every researcher in their lab is saying, you know what, I should be replicating this. Until we've, we've got that, that level of change where individuals are doing things differently, we're going to need these big these big replication studies, just to try and keep the ship on track. Because over time, if you don't have that, the ship kind of gradually veers toward the iceberg. And I think you need to apply a course correction. And you can either do that continuously by having someone at the helm, but psychology really has nobody at the helm in many areas. And so the reproducibility projects, these large-scale ones, can be thought of as like parachuters jumping down onto the ship, turning the steering wheel and then jumping off again. So um, we're going to need that for as long as we haven't changed those, those baseline practices. You're quite a few years into this project or, or crusade, maybe is a, is a better word for it. And you're clearly making progress. But are there times when you think, oh, my God, maybe I should just have kept my head down and concentrated on my research or running the center or whatever? And are there ever dark midnight moments you think, oh, God, I've, I've really bitten off a, a vast amount to chew? It's certainly a lot of work, but I've never had any doubt that it's the right thing. I've never really had a moment where I've thought, oh, this was a mistake. Who knows? Maybe that moment is yet to come. You can never know the future. But for now, I've, I've, when I look around and I see all the change that's happening, and I'm just one person in a very large group of people who are motivated to try and make this discipline work and to make it sustainable. I, it just, it's a continual source of, of energy, really, and for motivation. And so that, that helps me get through it. And it's hard work. I mean, you find yourself having to do this stuff on top of your day job. And the, the last thing I wanted to ask you, you say in the last page of the book that you, what you want to see is psychology as a truly rigorous and open science. How far away from that objective do you think it is at, at the moment? That's a good question. I think anything from 10 years to 100. And I'd hope closer to the lower, the lower number. I think if it takes 100 years, we probably won't exist. I think, I, don't think, I think we have a limited time to do this. And I think that's, that's a message that doesn't get through and to enough psychologists who just think that academia and science will keep trundling along as it has for a long, you know, up to this point. But um, I don't think that we can make that assumption. And I think we have, to, we have to pursue this reform agenda with a certain degree of energy and pace. So I hope that within 10 to 15 years, we could do an interview like this again and say, wow, look what changed and look where we've come. I was talking to Chris Chambers about his new book, The Seven Deadly Sins of Psychology, which is available now in hardback from Princeton University Press. You can find out more about it on Princeton's website. Do also visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to the programme on iTunes, where you can also catch up on any interviews you've missed. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.